You're listening to Unpacking the Real, Season 2 of Real is Not Real Enough. This is Episode 1. Welcome. My name is Helen Wolfenden, and along with my colleagues Ben Nickel and Chris Muller, we spent over a year producing an audio version of a remarkable diary by Gunter Anders. The diary was written while he was in exile in California in 1941. It takes us into the Hollywood Costume Palace, where Anders was working as a cleaner, and he saw up close how movie magic is made real. Make sure you have a listen to Season 1, the podcast movie, Real is Not Real Enough. In this season, we're going to take you beyond the audio diary itself and into some conversations that tackle the ideas the diary raises and takes them for a test drive out in the world we're all having to deal with. If you're like me and you don't speak German, there's every likelihood that this is the first time you've heard of Gunter Anders. So in this episode, we're going to spend a bit of time getting to know the man and his work. Born in Breslau in 1902, Gunter Anders came from a very academic family. His parents, Clara and William Stern, were famous psychologists, and his father, who was also a philosopher, coined the term intelligence quotient, or IQ. As part of his parents' work, young Gunter's childhood was extensively documented in an academic diary. Before being forced into exile in 1933, Anders was married to Hannah Arendt, had completed a doctorate, and was on track to follow in his parents' footsteps and become an academic. But Hitler's rise to power changed everything. Anders was forced into exile, and it would take 17 years to return to Europe. But he never became an academic, although he did become a prolific writer philosopher and cultural commentator. Our guest for this conversation is Dr Anna Polman. Anna wrote a book on Anders, specifically his ideas about history, and she takes us into the archives that she spent so many months sifting through as part of her research. The title of Anna's intellectual history translates as Fragments from the End Time. Real is not real enough is the title we gave to our adaptation of a chapter of Anders' collected diaries. When Anna talks about this chapter, she refers to it as the corpse washer of history, which is a literal translation of the German title, Der Leichenwäscher der Geschichte. It's interesting to think about why Anders chose such a brutal title for this work. When you hear it, you would never think that what we're about to hear is an account of working in Hollywood. So there's a bit to get our heads around when we're trying to make sense of the approach Gunter Anders takes to his writing and philosophy. There's a few other things worth pointing out before we get started. We recorded this in June 2021, and it was still quite early in our process of producing the audio diary. What you'll hear is our research in action. It was conversations like these and the others you'll hear in this season that actively helped us adapt the diary to sound. There are four people in this conversation. Me, Helen, you know what I sound like. Anna, who you'll hear in a moment. But you'll also hear Chris, who sounds like this. I'm interested in 
the way emotion and technology intersect and how re-engineering technology re-engineers emotion and what we can learn about that. And Ben, who sounds like this. And for me, that whole thing about the corpse washer, that was really so interesting because you know, I talked with Chris a lot about, so this is like just exactly like, you know, like modern pop culture. Let's start with Anna. She explains that even though Anders' diaries are not the best-known examples of his work, they have a lot to offer. Actually, these are my favourite uh, writings of Anders, <laughs> and um, very, I mean, very condensed. If you know, like all the archival fragments that are stored in the archives of Vienna, and and then somehow you see reflections of all these archival materials in these uh, diaries. It's, it's super interesting. And so um, I think it's sad that not too many people know these diaries. <laughs> they're not, I mean, they're not his most famous writings. And so I was very, very happy to hear that there will be really like also a podcast series on, <laughs> on that part of his work. You've sort of answered our first question a little bit, which is how you come to the diary and what brings you to the text. Um, Mm -hmm. You said that it's one of your favourite kind of pieces of his writing. Is there a particular line or is there a particular moment from the diary that really stays with you that, or that that's a favourite within the favourite, if you like? Yeah, I think that like two, the two entries from I think 14th and 15th of March. And I think they are very like, very condensed concerning Anders' um, discussion of progress. And there's first the thing where he's, I think, draws on the cultural industry. I think it's the line, let me see. Um, uh, wait, wait, wait a second. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's the 15th of March where, where he says... 15th of March. It is easier than one might expect to get used to the fact that history and ready-to-wear items blend with one another here. I'm surprised at how easy it is to get used to the fact that here, in the costume palace, historical items and off-the-rack clothes are one and the same. It's already normal to me that all items are grouped by country of origin and historical time periods, like they're on display in a museum. But it's also as if they're on, on, it's like they're on sale in a department store. What I do find difficult to get used to, even though it is a logical consequence of this line of business, is how much value is placed on outshining that which actually was. Still, this is a principle here. So I think this is very like, he's pointing there to this, historical order of, of progress, like this um, conception that history um, and epochs of history, the order of history makes sense. And um, there is a perfectly fine historical order that we call progress and that he sees this order of progress um, in the way the costumes are organized in this costume place, or he, he called it custom place, yeah? <laughs> yes. This misspelling. <laughs> um, so this is one line, and the other one is... Um, if I can say, I've never actually 
realize what you just say. It's beautiful <laughs> with the costumes being hung in the order of history. I hadn't actually thought of that. That's actually very beautiful. So <laughs> I've already um, changed completely how I see that bit of the text. So cool. Uh, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, somehow this, this part became very, very central for my argument, actually. And, um, and also uh, where he asks, um, California. I think it's after going to the cinema and uh, watching this, what he calls imbecile Madame Pompadour movie. 14th of March. Um, and he talks to his friend and he said, um, um, No, 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 listen. This film had nothing to do with history. I mean, you know, it was made from prefabricated goods and to create it, Finished products were turned into ingredients. What this means? Well, it's like, like cheesecake. Look, cheesecake isn't made from milk and flour. It's made from cream cheese and cookies. First, the cookies are crumbled for the base. Then the cream cheese is mixed into the filling. Costume drama is made exactly the same way. Let me explain. Costume dramas don't use history as their flower. The makers of such films take existing novels and put them in the mix. Might this be the strange recipe for the culture industry, industry as a whole? As a whole. Um, and then I leave out a few lines. This uh, means we cannot gain the truth about our world if we ignore that the business of faking history has become a substantial part of history itself. Ended by wondering, has history only ever been the continuum of its own self-distortion? So I think he points to the fact that somehow um, cultural industry um, technical progress in, in cultural productions becomes part of history and we, we have to take this new form of uh, technological progress in the cultural realm um, into account if we, if we talk about history, which is important for like, if we see Anders in exile, like Anders arriving in Hollywood finally, taking all these odd jobs to manage his life, um, I think it's kind of um, a Gleichzeitigkeit, I don't know actually the, Eng the English term for it. It's, uh, it's like two movements simultaneously. Like first of all, it's, it's the end of his flight. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's leaving Europe, he goes to Paris, then he goes to the east uh, coast of the US, lives in New York, then he comes to the west coast, uh, lives in Hollywood with friends and starts taking all these all these jobs but at the same time there's it's like an intellectual movement it's the like the continuous farewell from a concept of history like the enlightened concept of history that that he grew up with he was trained in philosophy he even uh, has a phd in philosophy he was dealing with the notion of history and philosophy of history a lot and i think in this part of the diaries these two movements somehow intersect He's, he manages to escape from Europe and he um, tries to make sense of his biography, of his survival, but on the other hand, he tries to make sense of the 
what history can mean, what historical narrative can mean if there is destruction, if, uh, if he looks back to Europe, he sees the, I mean, what's going on in, in Eastern Europe. So um, I think these are very, very condensed philosophical pieces, <laughs> especially mm -hmm. the one on 90, 1941 in, the, in, in Hollywood. I mean, you've spent a lot of time um, and are working with a broad body of Anders' work in his archival notes, letters and texts and ideas. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about what that was like for you and, and what you found? Um, I mean, first of all, it's interesting to go to the archive in Vienna because Anders also writes a lot about Vienna. Yeah, He writes about the Vienna of the Cold War time and he says it's such an... Um, uh, anachronistic place like there's all this nostalgic longing for like the pre-war Habsburgian world and then it's kind of a neutral place during the cold war so you also you know get this Habsburg nostalgia when you visit the archive but the archive itself like the Anders papers they were when I started working there was no systematic to that and not to speak of digitalization. I think they, they didn't start digitalizing anything. So I think there was just a broad list of signatures and titles, but there were no like tables of content or anything. It was quite chaotic. So I, I ordered all these like huge packages of papers. And I also realized the papers were like... I don't know, Chris, if you have seen them, like if you have been yeah, there, like it's that also that you have these papers that were somehow glued together and little notes, you know, it's really like a mess. <laughs> and of course, many, many men have manuscripts in, in like different stages and it's uh, not everything has uh, exact dates. I think I started with the letters actually which gave me some good insight into his intellectual milieu of the 50s and 60s. And also a bunch of letters that he wrote uh, to Hannah Arendt or Hannah Arendt wrote to him when he was already in the US and she was still in Europe with her um, new fiancé then. Uh, and um, it is his source of information uh, like personal information, what's going on in Europe. Hannah Arendt is stuck in, in France. She tries to escape Europe. Uh, she writes a lot about everyday life in, in occupied France and in the southern zone. And she also about her internment in uh, the Gours uh, concentration camp and so on. So, and in the end, she, she writes this uh, telegram that she saved. She, she just arrived in New York, she saved. It's just a short note, but it's very impressive yeah, seeing this telegram in the, in the archive. Um, and that was also like something that was uh, like complementing the diaries in a way, yeah, because it's written from, I think, years, I don't know, 39 or 38 until 1941. Um, so there's also... In Anders' work, I think you can see this mirroring of the philosophical thought and literary form. And he, he's, he's never um, 
accurately like separating both from each other. It's like really a back, back and forth of ideas between literature and, and philosophy, which is interesting. It also is his signature in of his, um, his way to write, like he calls it Gelegenheitsphilosophie, like occasional philosophy. And he um, became really like a, like a specialist in writing in these hybrid forms. And I think this is also maybe why why people are a bit scared of dealing with Anders because he's, I mean it's not if you want to put it put him into disciplinary borders it's not possible. I don't yeah, know can I just ask a take... question? How would you describe that style? You know, you call it occasional philosophy, but um, like in like maybe just very general terms, like how would you like? Because I'm, I'm still like thinking, how does he do it? Because it's like a script writer. And it's like a puzzle piece, but every piece could go anywhere. So it's like this insanely, like, it's like 4D chess. Like, how do you make sense of the bits and pieces? So. I mean, the, I, I wasn't working on that, but I was um, referring to a, to a colleague of mine, um, Max Beck, who wrote a, like a whole, a small, like, I think it was this MA thesis, maybe, that dealt with this occasional philosophy. And... Also in Anders' archive, you find a lot of texts where he's very explicit about this kind of writing. And he says that, like, you have to start from, like, everyday um, observances you do. Like, uh, you have to have a starting point that is everyday life. <laughs> mm -hmm. But from there, you have to open, like, philosophical questions. But these philosophical questions always have to be bound to a very concrete situation. I wonder, can I ask, as you're a historian, an intellectual historian working with the archive, I mean, you know, I'm very conscious that a lot of Anders' work reappears, like identical sentence in a different text, completely different mm -hmm. context. Did you encounter that phenomenon? And how did you, I don't know, the way this, these ideas evolve or reappear it's something that really fascinates me I don't think I've encountered it anywhere else yeah I mean the corpse wash of history I think it's a good example for this because um, here you have like several expressions that appear in his philosophical manuscripts and in the diaries like this um, history as a continuum of its own self-distortion and um, I think this is something, it, I think it's even the title of one of his manuscripts so this whole idea of history becoming like a continuum of its own, own self-distortion that he articulates in the 40s, of course it's, it became just much more serious and existential when it reappears uh, after the war because there it's like history is like ending itself yeah somehow I think there's also this radicalization of ideas that he develops in his philosophical anthropology for example like this notion of uh, Weltfremdheit um, or Mensch ohne Welt that becomes somehow real it was a philosophical idea but it somehow becomes a uh, reality in the wake of the atomic bomb, for example. So there's also this kind of reappearance of philosophical ideas in reality, as if reality enacts philosophical ideas or radicalizes <laughs> philosophical ideas somehow. There's also this, this movement, I, I, I'd say. 
Yeah, maybe this the problem that you were po pointing at was, I think, also my main problem to, to solve, like the question of how to put all these bits and pieces um, that were written in different, different genres, how, how to make sense of these. And should I make sense of these? Because obviously Anders... This was not his main interest <laughs> of giving an impression of a writer that, uh, you know, like uh, has some... That's like, an answer, you know, are we more interested in it than, in it than him, you know? <laughs> like, you know, finding him, <laughs> he like, doesn't care about like, the grand yeah. narrative and we're like, oh, we want, yeah. we want the grand narrative. So. Yeah, yeah. Always the time, like when I was writing the book, this was the main thing. I was struggling um, with giving it a structure This is the methodological um, challenge you have to face and it comes out of the material and that's the task and uh, one day you will solve it. And the book is not, uh, is not in a chronological order. Yeah, we can't give this to you in ni nice neat boxes, you know, it's, gonna, yeah. it's not what it's about in a sense. You sort of touched on this and I want to bring you back to it because I was kind of sort of had a wry smile as you were talking about it because we had it kind of written as a question, and I, so I'll ask it specifically in these terms. Does Anders' work make for good source material for a historian? <laughs> I think I know what you're going to say. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> totally not. <laughs> totally not. I mean, uh, not like I'd say... Um, His letters are a good source material if you want to understand how, like, emigres returning to Europe, how they find their way into um, public, the German-speaking public, uh, who is interested in their thoughts, like, which things um, were published, which things were not published. Um, like, I think for the letters, they make up, like, good source material for, for tracing um, emigres' thought or the, their presence in post-war cultural life in the, in the early Federal Republic. Uh, I say this, but it's not um, that you can learn in Anders' uh, books about... I mean, you can't learn anything about the year 1941, the, um, the Holocaust itself, yeah? I think you can learn how he tries to find a historical narrative for it, but you can't learn about historical facts. Um, so so it's, it's a source material of a different kind, I'd say. I learned a lot about also how uh, Anders, like on one hand, he was embraced in the German public for like some of his thoughts, like what he brought about the atomic bomb and his critique of technology. This was like very much in line of the, you know, cultural critique of the early Federal Republic. Um, and then you could also learn what people didn't want to read. And I think the diaries, as far as I could learn from, from, uh, from reviews that I read, People thought they were, they were just not in time. Like, why should someone in the 60s write about the Holocaust? <laughs> it was really like, people were kind of, they knew the Anders, you know, from the Antiquitatis Mansion, this cultural critic. They didn't want to, to hear about um, coming to terms with the past. This was not, 
that but they were interested in. I think Anders wanted to publish the uh, corpse washer in 1965 in the journal Merkur. Uh, he wrote a lot about uh, in this journal in the, in the 50s and 60s, and they didn't take this. Um, and they didn't publish it. And even two years later, when he published the whole volume of his diaries, you could still understand there was obviously no readership for, for, for these kind of texts. And I think this is like, um, it's a so good source material for understanding like how distorted historical thinking gets <laughs> and also about the post-war um, cultural milieu and also political leftist milieu of the 50s. And he, the role he took there, which was very ambivalent, I'd say. So, I mean, how did you feel then when you were in that space? I'm trying to picture you sitting in that. We, we use, we've got a term, we use the term dusty big boys. I'm thinking it's seeing you in the <laughs> dusty big boys, the library, immersing in, in all of this stuff. Um, it must have been quite a strange you must have had a lot of stuff going on yourself as you were trying to process it. Yeah, I think that, like, first of all, there were also challenges because in this library, they were super strict. Like, they, there was no permission to take photographs of the material. I was just really sitting there for months uh, writing excerpts of what I read. And it was, it was just, like, um, crazy because, I mean, every... And you ask yourself why why there was this why there were these complications and also it was super um, expensive to to make photocopies. I mean, first of all, you were not allowed obviously to do that yourself, but to let someone like archival staff do that for you was just super expensive. And then when I first came there and I took took notes and uh, put it in my own like database i of course had different questions in the beginning than i had like three years later so i had to go back to some of the source materials i don't have this feeling i i, I got to some conclusion with anders at this feeling at one stage you know i have to close the curtain in a way and and say okay that's the that's somehow um sometimes i made of of these fragments and I, and I I wouldn't claim for myself that I saw every piece in this archive yeah I think there's still much many more boxes that I haven't really looked into <laughs> so uh, and I don't know if people will do it I'm not sure <laughs> like when we we're working on it it's like this puzzle this jigsaw piece and like the jigsaw puzzle you open it it doesn't have a picture on it so you don't know what it looked like when it's done yeah you don't know how many pieces are in it doesn't tell you that either so you're yeah. like, you know, this like, it leaves me with this feeling like, oh, is it done yet? <laughs> like, how does it get me that frustration? I think that uh, is so like a neighbor, I think. <laughs> yeah, but I think yeah. working with its Anders is very much about details. I mean, you have to start from, from one of the details. I think you can't just, you can't have an overview. You just need to mm. look for a starting point and then go on from there and then somehow try to find your ways through this archival material without like get, getting like too challenged by the thought that you will never have an overview <laughs> or yeah yeah we've got so much material here so just um, a big thank you Anna yeah, um, I think we're yeah like, it was a pleasure um, I'm 
I'm really curious yeah. what you will make. Uh, <laughs> so are we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Unpacking the Real, season two of Real is Not Real Enough. Just as a postscript to this episode, if you're wondering why the archive we're talking so much about is in Vienna, it's because Anders settled there in 1950 with his wife, Elisabeth Freundlich, and the archive is stored in the Austrian National Library in a beautiful Baroque building that also houses the famous Spanish Riding School right in the centre of the city. Unpacking the Real is a collaborative research project created by Chris Muller and Helen Wolfenden from Macquarie University and Ben Nickel from the University of Sydney. We are grateful for the support of the many organisations who've got behind this project. And you can find out more at the Goethe website for Real is Not Real Enough. Check the links in the show notes and remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.